Welcome to the Mindful Hour. I'm your host, Shannon Lightborn, and today's episode is a sensitive one. We've brought on special guest Alexandria Johnson to discuss suicide prevention in the Bahamas. Though this episode does not contain any graphic details, some of the conversation and the themes that we are going to be discussing may still be sensitive for some, so please listen with caution. Thank you for tuning in, and as always, this podcast is made and produced by the Bahamas Psychological Association. Suicide, a term that is increasingly becoming more prevalent in Bohemian society, is affecting more households every year. There was a 38% increase in suicides in the Bahamas in 2020, with 11 suicides in 2020 as compared to 8 in 2019, according to statistics from the Royal Bahamas Police Force. Of the total suicide victims, 10 were male and 1 was female. Our very own Dr. Kevo Bethel stated in a recent interview with the Global Journal that one of the leading causes of suicide is the feeling of shame and when one struggles with high expectations versus reality, when we come to the realization that we can't live up to certain expectations, and in actuality, we can't achieve all of our dreams. According to suicide studies conducted by Dr. Kava Bethel in the Global Journal of Human Social Sciences, Bahamian men are more susceptible to committing suicide than Bahamian women, indicating the rates were highest among 35 to 44-year-olds and lowest among adolescents and teenagers, according to a 14-year study. Two of the most damaging consequences for men are related to their mental health. Men are both less likely to seek mental health services than women are, and men are more likely to die by suicide than women are. When it comes to suicide prevention, most suicidal individuals give warning signs or signals of their intentions. The best way to prevent suicide is to recognize these warning signs and know how to respond if you spot them. If you believe that a friend or family is suicidal, You can play a role in suicide prevention by pointing out the alternatives, showing that you care, finding resources and seeking a psychologist slash counselor or emergency medical services. I'm going to leave you with three suicide prevention tips. Tip one, if you're worried, speak up. Tip two, always respond quickly in a crisis. And tip three, offer help and support.
Hi, Miss Alexandria Johnson. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm great. I am very excited to have you on. I this topic today is, I think, very close to my heart. It's very important to me. So I just want to thank you for coming on to talk to us about this. Pleasure. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I guess just to start off, can you give us a little bit of information about your professional background and how that has influenced your experience with the topic of suicide in the Bahamas? Right. So I'm a clinical psychologist and the child forensic specialist. I am employed with the Public Hospitals Authority. I have been with the authority for 10 years. And um, throughout that 10 year period thus far, I have had the opportunity to work at our inpatient psychiatric hospital, that's Sandilands Rehabilitation Center. And now I work at our outpatient center, that's the Community Counseling and Assessment Center. But um, within these settings though, I would have worked with clients across the lifespan with various degrees of suicide risk. It's low, moderate, high risk. Uh, My work has been and still is though in the area of treatment, um, providing treatment for individuals presenting with suicidal ideations at various levels of intensity and frequency presenting with um, history of parasuicide attempts and aborted attempts, interrupted attempts, failed attempts. So my job is ready to come in utilizing, you know, various theoretical frameworks to help them to work through the presenting issues. And these presenting issues are powered sometimes by precipitating factors, predisposing factors, perpetuating factors and even protective factors. And so I also have the opportunity too to help people with the post attempt work. And and that may be helping them to work through the anger or even some PTSD symptoms. Wow, you you sound like you have a very important job. And I can't imagine how how much effort you have to put in, how much emotional energy you and you have to use to engage with this type of work on a daily basis it it's it takes a, a lot of work like you said but you get the energy from you know loving what it is that you do you know this this types of work you know it takes you beyond the nine to five sometimes you know, just to help people get through difficult moments, but it's powered by, you know, love for the job and love for people, you know? <laughs> yeah, I feel that that is exactly what we want from the people who, I mean, essentially take care of us in our society. Mm-hmm. So you work with people who s- struggle with suicidal ideation or attempts, what is your understanding of how payments in general treat the topic of suicide historically and how maybe that has changed in recent years? Okay, so um, historically, let me go wide for a moment and, and then let me come down 
And so historically, you know, the topic of suicide has changed over the years. And for the better though, you know, we have, we have come far, you know, even though it may look like there's so much for us to do, we have come so far. So right now, there is this notion and suicide is being projected as a public health issue. And, and that is so important for us to, for me to say, and that is so important for us to know, be, be, but be, because it's being seen that way, um, it definitely shifts the way in which people who present with distress is being treated. Let, let me give you a background so you can further understand. So, so historically, let's go way back, right? So prior to suicide, being seen as a public health issue and the shift in our response, it was seen as a catalyst for transformation. So people believe that if I die this way, I would be transformed um, into something magnificent. Um, suicide was viewed as a criminal act. If someone was to attempt suicide, they were actually excommunicated by the church. If someone died by suicide, the church would actually bury them in, a, in another place. But, but thanks to the work of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention in 2010 and the, and the work by WHO in 2014, we see this shift. You know, we see this shift in the way that um, people see suicide and our responses. And I think even here in the Bahamas, we 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 are we we um our responses is not in keeping with those old historic kind of um, responses where suicide was seen as a criminal act or 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 it resulted in persons being excommunicated from the church. But I see even in the Bahamas, you know, we know that it's a it's an issue, and we see a lot of people being a little bit more invested in the cause and being interested in the cause and people being even more interested in seeking help, right? And so I, I think that's a good thing globally and, and that's a good thing for us. No, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, just bohemian's willingness to even touch the topic of mental health at all yeah i could definitely say i've seen a shift in recent years mm -hmm. i tell you when when persons come through the doors after experiencing you know uh, a parasuicide attempt or abor aborted attempt you know i was like i'm, I'm always like yes you came yes and, you know, to see them, you know, wanting, you know, just pushing through the stigma, just just pushing through their own issues and just walking into the clinic, you know, and staying to be registered and staying to be seen and then committing to the process to getting better. You know, it's it's exciting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's truly exciting. You know, it's really exciting. Yeah, I just, I, I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it is to, to like you said, overcome the stigma, because even mm -hmm. though we've gotten more, we've 
shifted to a more accepting society, there's still always going to be, you know, dissenters and people who have something bad to say. And like you said, it used to be a, a religious issue where people had an issue with, with it from a, the perspective of sin. So, you know, as we're a very Christian country. So it's, it's always good to know that we still have people, people are still able to overcome whatever stigmas may be affecting them mm-hmm. just to seek treatment. That's right. You know, they say life finds a way. That's right. No, that's powerful. <laughs> that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so just moving on to our next question, because you have so much experience um, in the Bahamas. I wanted to know if there were any particular demographic groups that you think are more at risk for suicide in this country. I know um, Alan and Bethel, so grateful for them. They, they did a piece of work in 2014, you know, and it allows us, it allowed us, you know, as mental health practitioners and the, the wider Bahamas to have a, a microscopic look, you know, of suicide and its impact. And their work though highlighted that the rate of suicide was seven times more prevalent among males than females. Um, Their work also was so instrumental in giving us an age group because I know the, the World Health Organization tells us that suicide is the fourth leading cause of death among persons 15 to 29. But they were able though to give us a view of our reality, the Bahamian reality. And so they were able to show us that the rates in our society, particularly between the periods of 2000 and 2013, that the rates were highest among persons 35 to 44. So I I thought that was such a rich body of work. And then I I always say, if you are working with young people, the Bahamas Secondary um, School Drug Prevalence Survey, the latest one is 2011, is such a very important tool for you to have in your toolkit. Because again, it allows us to take a look at something. So within the adult population, Allen and Bethel is telling us that, okay, rates are highest among males versus females. But the the Bahamas Secondary School survey gives us another look, something that's happening among our adolescent population. So it's telling us that, you know, when we did our study, we found that females seriously consider and more than males, and then females endorse higher incidences of attempts, and that is adolescent females, higher incidence of attempts um, than their adolescent male counterparts. So that that was an interesting look too. And, and it's in keeping though, it's not contrary to what is we saying, but it's in keeping with the fact that, that you tend to have more women actually attempting um, and but you have more males completing suicides. But uh, you know, it, it was interesting. And in my own work, you know, with the forensic population, when we did a, a study looking at um, psychiatric symptomatology among 
um, males and females in institutional settings and their vulnerabilities. We find that the vulnerabilities that would push someone, you know, to make a decision like this, it, it, they were higher among the female population. So, so what Bethel and Allen is telling us that, okay, as we know, the amount of completed suicides are highest among our adult males versus our adult females. But then when we break it down to the adolescent population, we, we understand that, that there's a different movement um, afoot. And that just speaks to our approach and our messaging and how we reach these people, you know, and how we help. Thank you. That's, that is very interesting. And I, especially the statistic about the males, 35 to 44, that's mm. the age range. I, I always, like you said, globally, you associate suicide more closely with younger adults and teenagers. Mm. But that, that's, that's actually very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you- no, go ahead. I guess to, you know, um, it brings to light, you know, this whole notion of development and um, what people may think that they should achieve, particularly during this age range, and or, and what they they have achieved, what they haven't achieved. So it it brings to bear a lot of um, um, information about development. Mm-hmm. So develop, you mean like in terms of development of the, like the adolescent brain? Right. In terms of yeah. like, like um, let's say um, 35 to 40 years old, 35 to 40, mm-hmm. that, that's, a, that's a kind of age range that um, most people developmentally would want to have things locked down and moving forward. But sometimes things does not play out that way you know, it does not play out. And so I, I could only imagine, right? Like when I saw this, when I saw this age range, my immediate thought was, okay, is this an issue that we're looking at? People have like striving needs and striving goals and not being able to meet those striving needs and striving goals. Is this an issue where you know, within these age range that people are doing even social comparisons and they're seeing their contemporaries achieve certain things, certain markers, certain developmental markers, tasks within this range. And they're feeling like, okay, what am I doing with my life? Am I left behind? You know, that kind of thing. That's, that's some of the things that came to mind when I saw this age mm-hmm. range. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, okay. I understand that definitely. And this definitely, I think, a level of social pressure on top of the internal you know experience right especially men in our society we do expect certain things from men especially older men who are you know they're expected to have achieved certain things like you said career-wise family-wise relationship-wise that's it right that's exactly what I was thinking when I when I saw that age because like you you know my reaction is like wow that's peculiar but it's our reality. What does this mean? You know, the social scientists in here, what does this mean? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And what does it mean for um, um, outreach and like prevention? Like 
what does it mean when we have such various groups of people who are at risk for not just committing suicide successfully, but attempting it? Like the, I can't think of two different groups, two more different groups than teenage girls and, you know, older men. I can't think of two different demographics, but yet they're still struggling with similar issues. So how, what, how do you think suicide prevention efforts can best reach these groups? And just in general, what are the benefits of suicide prevention? And, and you know, you, you started to do the work so beautifully is, and I think it's identifying, you know, like as we continue to have these kinds of conversations, you know, it just makes this topic more relevant, you know, and gives us, you know, an opportunity as social scientists to be able to dissect this. And I think, you know, acknowledging who those vulnerable groups are, and, you know, and as we look at the literature, as we look at, at our reality, we're able to identify who, just who those vulnerable groups are. And like you said, it is the adolescents. It is uh, the elderly. It is the males. It is our LGBTQ community. And so it's acknowledging, firstly, it's acknowledging who those, who, who, who are those persons that make up the vulnerable population, clearly identifying them. And I think, you know, one effective strategy can be to craft specific messages for the various populations. And perhaps maybe using persons from the various population to help to get the message out. So, so let me tell you what I mean, right? So let's just say, we know that, you know, from this conversation today, from our readings, that our, let's say, teens, adolescents, it's a vulnerable group. So when we do our PSAs, right? So what we can say, okay, how can we get some teens involved in this process? To, to give messages to teens. So we can help them with crafting the message and the content, but allowing the teens to be the face of the message. Because I think, you know, it can make such a powerful difference if teens see teens rather than adults um, giving messages. And I think that if we can have that level of representativeness in our messaging, in our work, um, across these vulnerable populations and have so that they can see themselves in the message. I, I think that can have a, a powerful influence and can really shape things and help us to begin this process of reaching this vulnerable population. Yeah, I like that you said that, and especially using the word influencing, um, like influencers today, you know, they, I feel like teenagers are, not just teenagers, but the general population, if you're on social media, you mm -hmm. are seeing and perhaps even interacting with influencers. Right. And yeah, like these are people who, whose voices probably carry a lot more weight. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's the same thing. People like to see people who are similar to them and they're more likely to listen to them. And mm -hmm. not just with the teens, but I think with the male population as well. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm.
we were just talking about suicide prevention and um, the importance of diversity in our messaging. But on a more general note, what do you think are the benefits of suicide prevention in the Bahamas? I, I, I know one thing, you know, it comes to my mind so clearly, and that is suicide prevention saves lives, right? And um, one life lost is, is one life too many. And, and, you know, that's how I see it. There's, there's so much power in prevention, you know. Um, there's nothing more powerful than being able through, you know, education and PSAs to give tools to the masses so that they'll be able to um, deal with difficult situations and challenges in their lives, you know? And there's nothing more powerful than giving people information about where they can go to seek help when they're having these difficult times and they, they know that, that these challenges that they're having, you know, is far beyond that they can handle, you know? And there's nothing even more powerful, if that's a word, <laughs> than providing the community, building this, this army of people at the level of community, you know, training them through mental health literacy initiatives and education initiatives so that they know, you know, what to look out for and so that they know what to do. I, I think those, those three things are, are powerful and, and if we utilize those, activate those, I think that we can see some real big results, particularly in this area. I'm really glad you mentioned communities because I, I just wanted to, to ask you, from the top down, what role do you think our communities play? Like governments, our local communities, our families, what role do you think they play in suicide prevention? And you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how you say it top down because that's how I see it. I see government at top and I see communities coming, you know, second and then our families, right? I, I think um, it's important for the, for the government, you know, people at that, that level that can make big decisions to realize that when a people is healthy and, and I'm not talking about physically healthy, I'm talking about physical health, but when a people, you know, they're mentally healthy, then a country thrives. You know, it does great things. I, I think more investment is needed in mental health. I, I just believe that um, the government, you know, should really look at decentralizing our mental health services. You know, that's, that's something I stand by. You know, how I see it, you know, utilizing maybe a a public clinic on the major islands and having just a, a star psychologist and a counselor, you know, stationed at that clinic for that island, I think we can do great things. We can do great things and, you know, just helping people to just get through difficult moments before it gets to that point where they're considering life or death, you know? I just think about capacity building and what the government can do in terms of creating scholarship opportunities for persons interested in being counselors and psychologists, you know, to be able to go away to school, get trained and come back home because we need more people to be able to do the work. And in our communities, I just see the church just playing a major role and our NGOs just playing a major role because people come to them 
You know, I just seen them being able to, to do wonders in getting out their messages. I just see churches on a Sunday morning, you know, when they're doing their welcome address, even if it's for 30 seconds, you know, giving out mental health nugget or reminding the people about where they can go for help should they need it, you know? Mm-hmm. And finally, that, that actually, go oh, ahead. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I was going to say that reminds me a lot of Dr. Um, well, Barrington, Brennan. Okay. When he was on mm-hmm. and he talked about, because, you know, he's also a pastor. He talked yes. about how a lot of times pastors are the front lines when it comes to providing mental health services for people. Mm-hmm. And I only wonder mm-hmm. how valuable it would be to, to say, to have the government say, offer education opportunities for people who are in religious ministries. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I tell you, we, we can do so much, you know, and just having our families, you know, just coming, just coming along to check on your family members, the vulnerable ones and the strong ones. You know, just showing that care. I, I think that can go a long way, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Just just noticing people and yeah. having the having the not just the empathy, but the the willingness to ask, you know, are you okay? Yes. Yes. So from moving on from that, are there, do you think there are any topics related to suicide that just aren't talked about in depth? Hmm. Or maybe things that are under addressed? You know, I think so. I I think we, we shine the light on them, but we shine the light on them in a different way but I think that that when we see suicide and, and when we see these kinds of mental health challenges, we have to put them together. Like, I, I don't think that, that suicide should be seen as an other. I, I, I don't think that we should see it as something that is often its own by itself because, because in my work, I see it so intertwined and coexisting with other challenges. So, so let me tell you what I mean. So a person may present with um, primarily, let's say, some substance use issues, right? But, and what I see and what the literature is showing us that even though that person may present with substance use issues, there are high rates though, high rates of suicide attempts among and completed suicides among persons who use alcohol and among persons who may present with depression and anxiety and also among persons who present with physical illnesses like epilepsy and cancer and gastrointestinal disease. So I just, I just think that, that, that we should not get caught up in seeing suicide as an other. But, the, but we should be guided by what the literature is saying to us or showing us and perhaps even screen for it, even though somebody may, may present with, a, 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 let's say, a physical illness, you know, and, you, and you're a physician and you're managing them, you know, to screen for it. And somebody said, okay, I want to be enrolled in your substance use program because I was sent there for my job. 
but not just doing, you know, substance use screeners, but including in a suicide risk screener as well, because this is what the literature is saying. So mm-hmm. I, I think that these are some areas that, that we can start to look at. I know, I know people, they put suicide and depression together, anxiety together, but the substance use and physical illnesses, more emphasis in putting, you know, suicide and, and substance alcohol use or suicide and physical illness together. Because the literature is definitely showing us that, that the two exist, they coexist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what you said just now really like almost leads into my next question, which is how can Bohemians take all of this information that you're giving us right now and use it to help others in our society today? I, I know the, what I just spoke about, about the, the um, how to two challenges exist. I definitely know that this, that kind of information can guide like mental health practitioners and physicians and what it is that they do, right? In terms of, you know, what they assess for in terms of treatment planning and the referral process. So I definitely know this information can be, can be um, beneficial to them. But I guess, you know, so far in this conversation, let's say to to, to all, for all Bahamians, I, I, I'm hoping that they're getting the message that, that there is a place for all Bahamians to be a part of this cause, to join this cause, because we, we need everyone. So yes, we have our, special, uh, our specialists that can do the work, but, but at this point in the conversation, there's, there's room for everyone to be a part of this cause. And, and this, this knowing, you know, that, that suicide you know, it's it's something that that can that can be those the suicidal thoughts and, and attempts, it can be experienced by anyone. And so mm-hmm. we 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 I'm I'm hoping people are getting at this point that you know we have to be accountable, you know, not only for the vulnerable ones, but the strong ones. And then, you know, just using literature to help us to guide what we know and what we do, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I fully agree. I, I definitely think it's something we can be more aware of. And like you said, it can affect anybody, I think, regardless mm-hmm. of age, gender, race, mm-hmm. income. That's right. of Hurricane Dorian or COVID-19, don't suffer in silence. Please call our helpline. You can call or WhatsApp every day between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. We have several numbers. Our toll-free lines include a male, adult, and adolescent line, 1242-821-8123. Our general lines are as follows, 1242-816-3799, 1242-812-3799, 1242-812-3799, 
1242-815-5850. And 1242-815-5850. Our Creole language lines are 1242-454-2993-1242-357-9177-1242-822-4251. Our Child and Adolescent and Parent Support Line is 1242-819-7652. And finally, our Abaco line is 1242-822-4211. Please do not suffer in silence. We're back and we are winding down. And so I just want to shift our pop, our conversation to um, focusing on vulnerable populations in our country. And I want to ask you, given that we already, we have existing suicide prevention programs run by the government and nonprofit organizations, how do you see suicide prevention strategies working with lower income communities in the Bahamas? Oh, yeah, I I think, you know, Shannon, we, we must start, you know, at the point that says it can work and, and that suicide prevention work can be affected, effective within this population. I think that can be a good springboard, a starting point for us. And I think one of the things that we must do, though, is ensure that our work is relatable, accessible, right? And and by this, I mean, let's say you go into a lower income community, I think it's important for us to meet the people where they already meet. So rather than say, okay, we are having this suicide prevention program at this fancy hall, meet them where they already meet at the Junkanoo Shacks. They meet under the Dilly tree, under the Tamron tree, at the bars, you know, meet them where they already meet and have conversations or, or give them information, right? Again, you know, connect with the leader and the, the influencers in the community to get the message out because the people within these communities, they already know the leaders and the influencers. They they like them and they trust them. So this makes it easier for somebody who wants to do work to connect with them so that they can know you, like you, and trust you too. So, so imagine what a disaster it would be, hey, Shannon, if we decided that we we're gonna bust up in a community because we are uh, psychologists and we have work to do and we have a message to share and nobody show up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, you're right. It's better to show up where they already are. I, I love the idea of meeting, of just going to the bars because th that's two vulnerable populations right there. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. the, the 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 thirty five to forty four 
eight-year-old men and the um the people who drink. Mm-hmm. And guess what? When we go to the bar, you know, we can just give the bar owner maybe a little nothing big, no long mm-hmm. conversation, not nothing confrontational, but maybe something to stick up. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and in that one person that needs that information of you know where to go you know, may just see that number, write that down and be able to get help, you know. And another thing, you know, within these communities, a lot of times there, there are needs that exist in the communities. So I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, pairing a message while addressing the need. So let's say you have a free breakfast, but um, while you're giving all the free breakfast, you can give all little cards, you know, where people can go to talk to somebody should they need it. Maybe you may do a, a, a food package giveaway and while you're giving away food, you can also give them a little card and you can just let them know that should you need to talk to somebody about anything, just call this number, you know, and they'll tell you what to do next. You know, even I know a lot of MPs do fun days all across communities, you know, just joining along one of those fun days one time and just having a booth. Just and just put you can talk to me, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. on the front of the booth and have people come and talk and you you let them know if you want to talk further. This is you know, here's the number. Um, you know, we can arrange something for you to talk further. So I I think you know, being relatable, like like uh, meeting, like I said, meeting them where they already hang out, connecting them with the leaders, you know, pairing, addressing a need with the message. You know, you can't go wrong if you, if you go in with that kind of approach. You can't go wrong. Yeah, that reminds me of how we were talking about um, the role of communities and governments. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just like how you mentioned with the, the MPs and the fundays that they have. Um, imagine if we, we really were able to integrate mental health into every element right? of our society. Right? Powerful. <laughs> Powerful. <laughs> Powerful, like, and I think, you know, that's what we need to do. Like, um, and I know there's, there's just not many of us, right? And we are pulled in so many, so many directions, but, you know, there needs to be something, something activated, moving, going where, where we go to the people rather than wait for them to come to us. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. On, on real on the ground work mm-hmm. and I think you I think you mentioned some of it especially the parts about being relatable mm-hmm. and accessible but um, mm-hmm. what are some other key components that we as people in the field of mental health should really consider when we think about vulnerable populations and suicide prevention I, I think our our messaging and approach but I think it all starts with knowing that these vulnerable populations exist and knowing that, okay, something has to be done to reach these vulnerable populations. Something, something, maybe not general, but something more specific, you know, a message, a messaging or um, an intervention that is tailored to meet their needs. I, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're, we're back to the the diversity of the messaging, the, you know, mm-hmm. being specific and reaching specific groups. Right, 
Like, yes. Well, we are down to we have one last question. And as the expert, I just wanted to know for anybody listening who may want it for themselves or for somebody they love, what are some of the most important suicide prevention resources that we have in the country today? And how can people access them? Okay, so we do have the the um, the Bahamas Psychological Association hotlines, you know, that is still up and running, that mm-hmm. has been up and running from Dorian. We have um, hotlines that we have a hotline specific for men. We have a hotline for children. We have a hotline for for adults. We have a Creole hotline. Um, and, and those numbers can be found on the Bahamas Psychological Association Facebook page. And so we, we have those hotlines running. So persons all across the Bahamas can definitely make use of those, of those hotlines. We, we also have the Community Counseling and Assessment Center. That's on Collins Avenue, you know, um, that provides psychological, psychiatric services, the person seeking help, um, have a variety of um, programming coming out of the center, inclusive of um, individual therapy, group therapy, um, also just a varied approach in terms of uh, face-to-face and virtual. And, And the good thing about it is, you know, we can reach you all across the Bahamas, no matter where you are, you know, and you, you can reach us at that clinic at 323-3293-05 or 6, you know. And um, I, I, I think there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of resources. There are a lot of resources. And I think that, that people need to make use of these resources. I know that messaging is, is you know, getting out. And I think that people are, but it's just a reminder, you know, that they can, they can get help. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. You can find out more about the Bahamas Psychological Association or BPA at bahamasyc.org. You can also look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to check out our other episodes. We've covered topics like managing misinformation, building support networks, and intimate partner violence. The Mindful Hour is also now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts.